Father, thank you so much tonight for the assembling together of the saints. How you draw us together in groups like this all around the world, all through history. You meet with us, you encourage us, you strengthen us, you equip us. And we're so grateful for, of course, the salvation that you have provided to us in Jesus. And that you have been so abundant in your blessings that just fairly overflow this Christian life. Thank you for being our God, a chance to worship you tonight, a chance to do it together. And we pray, Lord, as we turn now to your word to study it and to learn more about you, that you would give it revelation to us and speak to our hearts through it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Book of Acts, chapter 3. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. The last month or so, um, two uh, pastoral giants went home to be with the Lord. Uh, Tim Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City and Charles Stanley of uh, First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And it isn't just how God used them, but in a world and in the body of Christ where we look for way beyond a person's ministry, just the character as an encouragement to us, um, they had it. It was the men that they were that made them um, the giants and gave them the esteem that, that we have. And not all giants are as well known as Pastor Keller and as uh, Pastor Stanley. And I want to tonight just to acknowledge a giant in my mind that went home to be with the Lord just this last Friday, and Pastor Craig Quam in Calvary Chapel, Montebelluna, Italy. And uh, he had fought uh, with leukemia for several years, and then finally there was, barring a miracle, no treatment that could extend in any way, and he went into hospice pretty quickly, and then home to heaven on Friday. And it really, um, that this one hits me like a ton of bricks, um, because he's always been an inspiration to me, and not just how God has used him in Montebelluna for the Calvary Chapel there, the Bible college that was established through him, the churches that spread throughout uh, northern Italy as a result of God's grace and use of him um, and, uh, and uh, this influence that, that he had, and, but for the man that he was. And I just wanted at this time in this little part of the United States of America, I just wanted to say his name and I wanted to acknowledge uh, the race that he ran, his integrity, was an honor and a privilege to have him as an example and to have him as an influence. And he's one of those guys that you just, it, it made you proud to be a Christian. And it made you proud to serve the Lord and to serve with men like that. And so he's uh, quite a bit younger than, uh, than I am. Uh, he's an 18-year-old and and then a daughter that they were hoping, he was hoping to live into next month or uh, July where she's expecting, was, is expecting to deliver their first grandchild and then another older child as well. Silvana, uh, Silvana is his wife and uh, so if it impacts me and uh, so many like me, I mean I just in a funk since Friday really and uh, to think about the immensity of the loss for them and for Northern Italy and the church and the family. And so uh, Dean Malaspina is on his way, took a flight today uh, on his way to Montebelluna. The service will be on Tuesday. Apparently in Italy they move right along on these things. And so he'll be flying in. He served with Craig there in Montebelluna for many, many years and they just had a kindred spirit. And so Craig asked that he would officiate the service and so he'll be uh, doing that. And I'd like to pray for the family and for the church now. 
Father, we thank you for Craig and thank you for his life. Thank you for um, how powerful you can make a life despite the relative few words that are spoken. Thank you for the miracle that his life was and that he knew his life to be, the privilege that he always felt in being able to serve you, the humbleness he always felt at your use of him. Thank you for how you used him so powerfully here in the United States and all of our lives that know him and have served with him, and, but also in northern Italy. Lord, the only downside that I know to a well-spent life is um, the loss that occurs um, when they go. And you knew this loss was coming. And we pray that you brood upon Silvana and upon the kids, upon the church, Lord. You're the only one that's bigger than all the need that they face. And we pray that you would dominate their thinking, that you would speak into their hearts and be their comforter, Lord. And we pray that you draw all of them very, very close to you and take good care of them. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. We don't know how much time has elapsed between uh, the day of Pentecost and uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the supernatural phenomenon associated with that, and then the church uh, making disciples of the people and emphasizing the apostles' doctrine and prayer and the Lord's Supper and fellowship and all of the miraculous things that surrounded uh, that and all those things were happening between chapters 2 and 3. But here in chapters, chapter 3, Luke now takes and brings our focus into a specific event uh, that uh, occurred in those early days. Um, and it's the most complete description thus far in the book of Acts that we have of a miracle of healing that occurred within the early church. But also I think it's recorded because it uh, constituted the introduction to uh, the Apostle Peter's uh, second great sermon and very, very effective as well. And uh, uh, 5,000 people being saved as a result of the sermon that was preached related to the miracle that occurs here. Uh, it, the, it, when it talks about here uh, them going in the uh, ninth hour, the Jews measured their days uh, by from six in the morning until six in the evening and then their nights the same way. So this would have been about three o'clock in the afternoon in the city of Jerusalem. They're making their way to the temple. They're making their way through one of the many gates to the temple, this gate called the Gate Beautiful. And beautiful because of the ornateness. Josephus speaks of it as a, a real wonder in the ancient world, uh, the, the gates that uh, constituted that entrance uh, into the temple. In the early church, the, uh, these two apostles, and Jews in general, did not uh, cease to uh, go to the temple. Uh, and, and so they went there probably for the exercise of prayer, as they're doing here, perhaps as an opportunity uh, to witness and to be a witness in that environment. When a, a, a Jewish person becomes a Christian, they are not, uh, it, it, it's not required that they cease to be Jewish uh, at all or not to acknowledge those roots. Now, they, Christ is the fulfillment uh, of so much, uh, and that would be disrespectful to elevate those things above the substance that is Christ. But they stayed engaged in this, uh, in this prayer and went to pray. And as they make their way on that ninth hour, a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered into uh, the temple. And so here is this man, his lame man, his physical condition is described. He's lame. He's been lame from his mother's womb. 
Uh, verse 7 indicates that it was a problem with his feet and with his ankles. So this is a man who has uh, never known what it is to walk. Not one step in his life. He's never known what it is to jump. He's never known what it is uh, to climb a tree or climb a wall and then jump off of it. Never known whatever was the Jewish in the first century equivalent of hide-and-seek with the neighborhood kids as he was growing up. Uh, never was able to feel that, even that, uh, that feeling that we get with just a little bit of our own propulsion that we feel in being able to walk. He's never experienced that. Not one time in his life he is born from his mother's womb uh, incapable of living that kind of life. And the daily condition that was his as a result, and it's described to us here, is that uh, in that day, if you were without the ability to walk in the city of Jerusalem, and really virtually everywhere in the ancient world, Jerusalem is very much hilly, and sometimes you take a trip to Israel, and you go to these different sites, and you go through Jerusalem and all, and you look and you say, uh, it's a good thing they don't have OSHA over here, or... I mean, you, we're so conscious of absolute safety and nobody can get hurt. Uh, the rest of the world isn't in that place. You'd have to block off the whole city. So even today, the stone kind of walkways and the slipperiness of them and, and the hills and the ups and downs. And so being in this condition, he would need somebody to carry him on a daily basis to this beautiful gate in order that he might beg for a living. And as soon as his mother and his father saw him come out of the womb, they saw the deformity of those legs, they knew immediately in that, in that part of the world and in that time in human history, a very difficult life lay ahead for him in terms of supporting himself any other way uh, but by uh, begging. And so uh, here he is now 40 years later from that birth, as we'll find out in chapter 4, and he knows about how hard uh, life is as well with these limitations. And so he's probably spent most of his 40 years, certainly after his uh, childhood, uh, his youth and adult years, most of them at that beautiful gate begging on a daily basis in order to be given enough money to sustain himself uh, another uh, day, which means he was at the beautiful gate during the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, which included Jesus being in the city of Jerusalem for significant blocks of time. I would suspect that um, he was well aware of Jesus on some level, that there's this miracle worker out there and he's healing people and he's healing uh, even entire villages of people of their illnesses. And you can imagine how small a subculture, how, how fast news can spread within a small subculture um, uh, in, in, within a city or within a, a, a country. And I'm sure the news spread very much through that subculture of people in his condition, hopeful that one day Jesus would maybe go through that beautiful gate and heal him. And Jesus' three and a half years of his public ministry, it has come, it is gone, and as far as he knows from the reports, Jesus is dead and is of no use to him in terms of uh, healing him out of this, this physical uh, condition. And so uh, here he is making a living the only way uh, that he could. His whole life revolves around uh, that gate. The healing is described there in verse 3, who, uh, as he's there at that entrance, Peter and John now, the apostles making their way into the temple for prayer, uh, they, uh, he saw them, and then he asked them for alms. He asked them for, uh, to be generous with some, some giving in the light of his, his condition. And fixing his eyes on him uh, with uh, John, Peter l said, look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something uh, from them. 
Now, it wasn't that many years ago in the United States of America to uh, certainly outside of the major cities, it was unusual to run into people who uh, begged. Uh, so there's so, uh, so much affluence and so many other factors related to it. It's un uh, unusual uh, for us, but much more usual today. I assume that here he makes known, he requests of them, he doesn't know who they are, requests of them alms that they would give him uh, a gift. And then Peter fixes his eyes on, on him. I assume that in the um, art of uh, begging, uh, I don't know how else to put it, that once you gain eye contact, uh, that's like a double in baseball. You're on your way. Uh, once eye contact is then coupled now with conversation with the person, uh, now something with great potential in terms of the beggar is in play at this point. Anybody that's not interested in giving something to him would simply avert his eyes, not speak to him, move quickly into the temple. This has, is laden with, with potential here in terms of uh, Peter now telling him to look at us. And he gave him his, the, his, him, them his full attention and then Peter said to them, silver and gold, I do not have. I imagine his heart just sunk at that point. <laughs> well, get out of the way. This is one of the two busiest times at the temple for me to have a little bit of fish and bread at the end of the day to eat and do all this again tomorrow. And so uh, Peter begins in this way, but he doesn't stop there. But he said, what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and uh, walk. And uh, here is this, what is clearly a, a word of knowledge from the Lord to, uh, to Peter that uh, God wants to, to heal this man. And, uh, and so he, he speaks to him in, that, uh, in, in declaring this. And, uh, uh, and when he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, uh, when, when somebody, for instance, for my name, Damien Kyle, that's like a label that they put on a Christmas present. It's just a means of identification. In the Jewish mind, a name represented the person. And, and, so it, 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 and so Peter was communicating by the person of the living, divine Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In other words, he is going to do what is just about to happen to you here, uh, rise up and uh, walk. And so uh, then Peter took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Peter didn't um, lift him up in order to produce the miracle at all. Uh, it was an encouragement to his faith to now experience the, the, the miracle. And he lifts him up and encourages his faith uh, and, and uh, encourage his faith in, in receiving the, uh, this miracle of this uh, healing. The response of, of the, the man uh, as he receives this, immediately recognizes that he's been healed and he feels something in his feet and in his ankles he has never known before in his life. And so his response was, uh, he, uh, leaping up, he stood, uh, never been able to do that before. Then he walked, and then this is a good sign uh, when God works in our lives. He then entered the uh, temple uh, with Peter and John, and he's walking, and he's leaping, and he's praising God. Now, normally, if you're going to have a, a healing of this kind and the structural deformities that were a part of his feet and his ankles, there would be like any kind of a physical therapy. It would require extensive time to now learn how to use now as an adult what you have never had to use before in terms of the coordination and all. Here this healing breaks through all of that. 
and just this complete, uh, beautiful, beautiful healing. And he's, and to just put ourselves in his shoes as he's so filled with joy. It, it, words wouldn't be enough. He's got to jump. He's got to leap. He's got to uh, walk. And all as he's experiencing it for the first time in his life. And I mean, the joy of the verse really, really uh, it, it, it encapsulates it. Not just what he's feeling in his body, but what he's feeling in his heart and in his mind. What a beautiful moment between uh, this man uh, and uh, the Lord. And so now he could hop and he could jump and he could walk and he could skip and go anywhere he wanted to go. And immediately he accompanies them uh, toward uh, the temple. I think that one of the things that we learn here in this passage and is important for us to learn as it relates to the book of Acts is the importance of a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians, as we see it here in Peter uh, and in, uh, in John. There would be no uh, book of Acts uh, apart from uh, the, the teaching of God's Word. There would be no book of Acts apart from uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. But there would be no book of Acts apart from Christian men and women living their life on a daily basis with a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit uh, through their uh, lives. And so that uh, importance of being able to ask ourselves tonight, is that still an anticipation and an expectation in my life? It's one that we can lose over time as a Christian. It can mark us early earlier in our Christian life where we wake up and say, Lord, I know you can do anything. Um, I, there's no telling what you might want to do today. And would you give me a sensitivity to the leading of your Holy Spirit in my life and that expectation that in some way he is going to lead us and he is going to uh, use us. And uh, here you see the early church walking uh, in that. And we can't make God work or do miracles according to our will. And uh, he operates these gifts individually as he wills. Uh, no Christian can wake up in the morning and uh, force God to do anything through, uh, through their life. And so one extreme in the Christian life to, that's to be avoided is the idea that if I have enough faith or I have enough anticipation and surrender and expectation that God will always uh, 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 honor that with the healing of someone, some lame man or some other situation in a person's life at the beautiful gate. So people then load too much in, into uh, that in terms of their their theology, and they put God in a box in that way. doesn't seem like a box, but it is. But the other extreme is no more helpful, and that is to be a Christian who has ceased to have any expectation of God working through our lives. Day after day, week after week, month after month, solid as a Christian, growing in uh, the Word of God, but an anticipation that God might use me in some supernatural way today, and I, and I am on the alert for that, uh, that no longer uh, being a part of our, uh, of our lives, and that prayer of availability to begin uh, the day, and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's uh, direction and use of us. And we see in the early church, they had that expectation. They didn't take it to where they became the driver's seat, in these things, uh, took over the driver's seat and steered things. But there was that anticipation. And so this passage is really uh, a record of two miracles. The healing of the lame man is really the second miracle. The first miracle occurred when Peter received revelation from God that God wanted to heal uh, this, uh, this lame man probably uh, came to Peter in the form of a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom from the Holy Spirit, uh, certainly a gift of faith 
uh, thrown in there and a gift of miracles, these, these supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and elsewhere in, in the Bible. Every one of us as Christians has some spiritual gift in our lives, way beyond our natural talent that he might give us. A spiritual gift, a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives for our service to him. We all have uh, uh, at least one in our lives. You know that Peter, he didn't heal every lame person that he ran into in Jerusalem or in, uh, at the temple, uh, but he did in this specific situation, and I'm convinced it was a word of knowledge that God let Peter know that he wanted to heal this man. What a word of knowledge is, is when God reveals a fact to us, a piece of knowledge that we could never otherwise know apart from him. And God revealed to him the, the word of knowledge, I want to heal this man. And he, he receives that, that word of knowledge. And, uh, and uh, then uh, Peter, God then works beyond the word of knowledge to give Peter, I think, a word of wisdom as well. What, word of wis- uh, what wisdom is, is knowledge rightly applied. So I want to heal this man, that's the word of knowledge, but then God gives Peter a supernatural wisdom for the given uh, situation. And so uh, how it's supposed to happen, and thus Peter declares, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And then he, in, in a word of wisdom, takes him by the hand, and, right hand, and then lifts him up. Of course, I, I would dare say there's a gift of faith involved in all of this. A gift of faith by the Holy Spirit is when uh, you look at this situation and you say, oh, I hope God doesn't make me do this at Save Mart tomorrow. Uh, it, it, and it, or I hope I don't have to guess <laughs> that, uh, on this kind of thing. What happens is God gives us a supernatural faith that is greater than any doubt that we might have about the situation. It's just we know that we know that we know that this is what we are supposed to do, and he gives us the faith to do it. And then after it's over, so often we look at it and we go, I can't believe I did that. And because it's a supernatural work of a gift of faith that God has imparted for us to do what we would never do or have the faith on our own to do in our our Christian life and uh, ministry. And so clearly a gift of, uh, of the working of miracles is manifest here as well. I remember very, very vividly my first exposure to the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, some 45 years ago at Calvary Chapel of Napa. And I suppose that in a lot of things in the kingdom of God and spiritually, you remember uh, those firsts so much. I remember my first afterglow, and I had been raised in a Christian church that wasn't too hip to those kind of things and very suspicious of them. And, uh, but just to wait on the Lord and to pray, and then God would operate in different gifts of the Holy Spirit, a word of wisdom, a prophecy, um, a reading of a scripture, whatever it might be. Um, and uh, so I remember Karen and I, we went to our first afterglow, and, and we walked out of it, and it was unlike anything we had ever been in before. Not wild, not crazy, I mean, just pure, peaceable, beautiful, beautiful time, but very active and very, very supernatural. And I asked Karen, uh, Karen asked me, she said, what did you think of that? And I said, I don't know what to think of that, but I, I believe it's all true and it's real. And of course, then we began to search the scriptures to discover that these things are a part of, of the Christian uh, life. I remember the first time I saw God speak through a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom and a gift of faith in a public setting like in our setting here. Um, I was a new Christian. I was with a man by the name uh, of G- uh, Jim Hartman, and it was kind of Napa's uh, version of 
uh, the cruising thing. Jefferson Street is the main drag. Everybody went out on there on Friday and Saturday nights. And all the way up at the north end of Jefferson Street, there was a McDonald's, which was kind of uh, newish at that time. And, um, and so all of the high schoolers and college-age people and all would just hang out up there in, in, that, in that place. And so we walked the whole length of of Jefferson Street. We witnessed to everybody that uh, we met along the way and just shared the gospel with them, gave them gospel tracts, and came up finally to the uh, McDonald's, and there's this group of young men, again, high school age, college aged, and and uh, we came up to share the gospel with them. And Jim looked right into the eyes of one of this group of about eight eight guys, and uh, with a word of knowledge, he began to reveal to him uh, the events that were going on in his life, right at, at that time in his life, that he had just been through a painful breakup with his girlfriend, how it had affected him, and, and several things like that, that the Lord loved him and the Lord wanted to save him. And I'm standing there as kind of a, a new Christian, and I'm thinking, Jim, just give him the gospel. Uh, there's no, they're going to think we're nuts. And, and if they think we're nuts, they're not going to listen to the gospel that you're, uh, that you're, you're sharing here. And so why, why take the chance? Who needs the aggra- aggravation here? And so, uh, it, and it turned out as I, uh, in, in it's, it's wonderful the things that we think that we never say, because uh, then it, it turned out that everything that Jim had said to this uh, young man was true. You, could, you, you should have seen his face you could have just really pushed him over with a, with a feather. And he received the Lord right there among his friends in that very crowded uh, parking lot filled with hot rods, and he gave his life to the Lord. And it's just that Christianity, that doesn't happen every day. We can't make any of the gifts happen, but to be open to that kind of thing and even expectant related to, uh, to those things in our own our own uh, lives. And so sometimes it can just be you have this strong impression that you're supposed to uh, write a thank you note to somebody whose Christian witness has impacted you or, or, or whatever it might be, or to shoot off an email uh, of encouragement, or it's on your heart to give a small amount of money to someone. You don't know what's going on in their life, in their situation. God doesn't tell you all of that. And then we do it. And so it isn't all healings and things like that, but just that prompting of the Holy Spirit. Good things always happen uh, for the kingdom of God when God's people learn, number one, to recognize these promptings, and then number two, uh, to heed those promptings. Because as Peter now heeds this prompting, the super big thing that happens here is that this man ends up getting healed. But the super, super big, big thing that happens here is he ends up getting to preach a sermon to a a group of people numbering at least 5,000 and probably many times more, 5,000 are going to come to know the Lord as a result of the sermon. They gather together because of the miracle that they see. We just never know what's on the other side of those promptings. We don't need to know. Um, just that God is up to something and to uh, heed this leading uh, of, uh, of his, uh, his Holy Spirit. And so Peter uh, here, as uh, all of this is going on, And uh, all of the people, verse 9, they saw him walking and praising God, and then they recognized him. They knew that's the guy who for 40 years has been begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. Uh, uh, Some clever commentator uh, described this situation is a, this man that was healed as someone who uh, uh, wanted alms and got legs. <laughs> Sometimes the worse they are, the better they are in, in my mind. Now, you'll never be able to get that out of your mind. 
It'll come to your mind at the oddest times. So they, they see this guy. They knew this is his station. And they see him doing what they haven't seen for 40 years. They're filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed uh, held on to Peter and John. So now, and the, that, that held on, the, the Greek word means uh, the hold of an arresting officer. He is not letting them loose. Uh, and, and so they now ascribe this miracle uh, that has occurred to uh, Peter and John in some way. They ran together to them in the porch, which is called uh, Solomon's, and they were uh, greatly amazed. And then it dawns on Peter, and now he gets it, he saw it, and he realized this is about way more than just uh, the healing of this lame man. This is about an opportunity to uh, share the gospel with, uh, uh, by a simple means of explaining the miracle to this congregation of Jews, deeply religious Jews. They're going to the temple at three in the afternoon for prayer. And so he recognizes the opportunity that's here uh, for uh, for uh, teaching them. If, uh, uh, this great miracle has gotten uh, everybody's uh, attention. And so they're probably surrounded on all directions as people are just coming into the streets uh, all around them. And again, a very, very large uh, number of, uh, of people. And so uh, here is he, they see this man with his death grip upon them. Uh, the crowd concluded that uh, Peter and John were responsible for the miracle. And then uh, Peter speaks, and he, as he saw it, and he responded to the people, men of Israel, it's a purely Jewish audience, why do you marvel at this? And the key word is the word you. Uh, why do you, as Jews, marvel at a miracle? Your entire history is one of miracles. And here you are getting so excited about a miracle that has been done uh, as if this is something that uh, God is incapable uh, of, of doing. And so uh, here he reminds them uh, of the fact that they, uh, they are, uh, uh, this is the God of Abraham, verse 13, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the God of our fathers, and he has glorified his servant Jesus. In the light of this heritage, why do you look so intently on us as though by our own power, our own godliness, we made this man walk? So that's the conclusion they came to, is that Peter and John, even as Jews, they concluded that these two guys were responsible for the miracle uh, that had happened. And Peter is very, very careful to tell them this did not happen because of any power uh, in us. And this did not happen because of any extraordinary godliness in our life. Uh, they were serious Christians, obviously. They were going to the temple to pray. Uh, they lived righteous lives, but they weren't extraordinary. Nothing about their life, uh, Peter is, is telling them, don't ascribe this kind of a working of God solely to, uh, 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 so, uh, uh, ascribe it to the, the, a person's power or ascribe it to their own godliness. And it's a good, it's a good word. Uh, so often when I think that one of the most probably one of the most difficult ministries God can ever call a man or a woman to is one in which he uses them mightily in this supernatural realm, in healing, uh, in word of wisdom, in word of knowledge, in prophecy, in miracles, and so forth. Because of the, the temptation then to somehow um, take the glory uh, to themselves. And it really takes a, a, a grounded person to begin to be used by God that way and never touch that glory the way these two apostles don't do it. It's funny, sometimes you'll hear people that are used by God in this way and they end up uh, dropping these uh, subtle uh, hints that somehow because of something they do, they have a power in their life 
that nobody else has. Or that they're a little, God uses them in this way because they're a little more righteous than everyone else. They read the Bible a little bit more. They pray a little bit more than something. And it's just this very subtle way of taking glory to ourselves, ascribing the miracle in some way to myself. And since God won't share his glory with any man, then pretty soon the anointing will go off of a person's life. And then the most dangerous thing, if there's no repentance related to it, and the anointing goes off of a person's life in this regard, is now to fabricate it. Because you know how to do it. And, uh, but, but still, uh, it's, it's over. And Peter and John, not interested in that at all. And so it's got nothing to do with us. Uh, The God of uh, Abraham, your God, the God of the Bible, Isaac and Jacob, the God of your fathers. What's happened here uh, is he glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let Jesus go. Wow. I mean, couldn't he have started with a couple of jokes and a a story about kittens or something like that, kind of a little icebreaker? And he doesn't do it. He has a purely Jewish environment in front of him in the city of Jerusalem, and he talks about Jesus being the servant of God the Father, and then he lets them know, you delivered him up, and you denied in the presence of Pilate, that pagan, that Gentile, that pagan Gentile wanted to let him go, pleaded time and time again to let him go, and you shouted him down. He had a higher view and a higher standard related to an estimation of Jesus than any of you had And uh, uh, when he was determined to let Jesus go. But you denied the Holy One, and that's an Old Testament term for Messiah, referring to Jesus, and the just. And so you condemned innocence, absolute innocence, a Holy One and absolutely just, And then you asked for a murder to be granted to you. uh, And speaking of Barabbas, as they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, give us uh, Barabbas. And he just brings the history of their sin, very recent history, um, to their remembrance. And you killed the Prince of Life. What about that? You talk about killing the goose that lays golden eggs. Well, I suppose golden eggs are valuable enough that you wouldn't want to kill the goose that lays them. But what about someone who provides life to the world and came into the world to provide uh, life? And, the, and just the, the contrast between the two, you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. Now, in explaining what's happening here, raised Jesus from the dead, of whom we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. I think that when we uh, look at this, how pointed the sermon is. And of course, he's being led by the Holy Spirit, and all of this is a massive open door. And, but I don't think, you know, he's, his veins are bulging out of his forehead and his neck, and he's pointing at him like this. He's just stating it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit brings the conviction concerning the truth of that, to the audience that has been gathered there. But you see the boldness of it. And uh, as a pastor, and any pastor will tell you, the tremendous pressure 
that is on churches right now in the United States, the Western world, really anywhere. But the pressure to um, not say anything that would hurt somebody's feelings or be hard for somebody uh, to hear. And so that's just the kind of the anathema. And uh, don't bring up anything that will make anybody ever feel guilty, no matter how great their sin or or their uh, guilt is. And so we uh, have this capacity, even in the body of Christ, to remain silent while people are driving their lives over the proverbial cliff and destroying themselves. And we don't see that here. Nobody can appreciate the good news of salvation that Jesus provides unless I'm aware of the bad news of my sin that makes me aware of my need for the good news. And so you can sit in the average kind of place so often and, and, it's, and it's all good news, all good news, all good news, all good news, and, and people go, why exactly? Would I receive that? Why exactly would I put my faith in Jesus uh, Christ at all that you, you talk about without the bad news of recognizing the need? And in this congregation, in this situation, evangelistic situation, God knew this was needed to be a straightforward uh, a declaration of, uh, of their their guilt, and he's faithful to do that, and obviously he confirmed that in people's hearts. Well, the, uh, you can only uh, hold somebody uh, underwater so long related to their need for God's forgiveness before you'll leave them hopeless uh, and, and uh, utterly wipe them out. And so Peter infuses hope here in verse 17 when he said, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as, all, as did also your rulers. He's not minimizing it. He's not excusing it. He's merely affirming what Jesus himself declared on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because they did not recognize Jesus as Messiah and as the Son of God, they did not fully understand the, what they were doing and the implications uh, of it. And Peter re- brings in this little touch of grace to keep their at least one nostril above water while he gets to the good news. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus Fulfilled, And so he gives this biblical foundation for faith in Jesus Christ uh, based upon his suffering, his death at their hands. And uh, they ignored the scriptures concerning the Messiah, Old Testament scriptures that had to do with a suffering uh, Savior. They only wanted a conquering king. And here uh, uh, Peter uh, reminds them that all of the prophets had spoken of the suffering of Jesus, of the Christ when he came. And therefore the solution now as he comes to it is repent and be converted. Repent of your sin and be converted by putting your faith in Jesus Christ that your sins may be blotted out or that they may be erased. Even those sins. Even those sins. Now, I don't know what uh, anybody that you have in your family or you have in your neighborhood or your workplace or related to our own path, past in, uh, in life uh, where uh, they have done something that you would look at it and say, wow, that is worse than being one of the Jews who stood before Pilate and cried out for Jesus to be crucified and then wanted Barabbas instead. It's a pretty significant sin, I think, from the vantage point of heaven. And yet there's forgiveness for it. There is no sin or series of sins or a lifetime of sin that is greater than the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us of our sin. Where would we be 
without that confidence and that hope coming from so many of us, the backgrounds that we have uh, come from. And so uh, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Wow. They're going to the temple. They're Jews. They're observant. These people are serious about religion. But they did not know the refreshing of the Lord that comes through faith in Christ and uniquely in him. It's just religion becomes religion. It just becomes something uh, that, that we, we do. And it long ago ceased to be a, a refreshment, could not be the refreshment that God intends to bring into a human life by uh, believing in Jesus and then be indwelling, indwelt by the, the Holy Spirit. And here is this refreshing that you might finally experience the, the presence of the Lord in your life and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since uh, the world uh, began. And so he speaks to them here uh, that not only will the salvation result in the forgiveness of their sins, but it will uh, make them uh, ready for Jesus' return. In verses 20 and 21, when he comes to rule and reign at his second coming uh, in, in the kingdom uh, age. And then Peter, and he knows how to close a sermon, and he knows his audience, that's for sure. He reaches down, and surely it's the Holy Spirit, of course, and he now quotes the most authoritative voice in terms of a faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and as Messiah, the most authoritative voice he could pull out of the entire Old Testament. And that was the voice of Moses. And so he quotes Moses, for Moses truly said to the fathers, including you, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, speaking of Messiah, like me from your brethren, him you shall hear in all things and whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who does not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And so he, he takes and he, he undergirds the truth that he's been speaking to them, shows them the Old Testament roots of it, that Moses had talk, spoken about the very things that I'm saying to you here uh, about the Christ. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and all those who follow, as many as have uh, spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all of the families uh, of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking of the Messiah, to come into human history through the, uh, the, the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish uh, people. And so uh, to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And so they had the privilege of hearing the gospel. Right now, the gospel is pretty much just going to the Jews at this point. It'll jump out into the Gentiles. But Jesus came and and they had the privilege of hearing uh, the, the, the gospel first. Uh, then the Gentiles would hear that and uh, that Jesus was sent uh, to uh, bless them and to bless us. By how? By turning us away from our iniquities. And so he said, use the privilege. Use the privilege. You of all people on the face of the earth should be believers in this Jesus is as Messiah uh, above all of, of the Gentiles. And be an example to the Gentiles, he came to you first. Well, we'll stop there tonight and we'll uh, look to prepare uh, to partake of the Lord's Supper this evening. So the Lord's Supper, um, the bread, the symbol of Jesus' body uh, on the cross and the blood, the symbol of his, uh, the, the cup, the symbol of his blood, uh, shed upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. It's one of the four uh, ordinances that we saw in Acts 2.42 last time. 
the Apostles' Doctrine, Prayer, Fellowship, and the Lord's Supper. And as we mentioned last week, the Lord's Supper is uh, one of the ways that, uh, that keeps the themes of the cross ever before us as Christians. The love of God, the indescribable, humbling, unbelievable love of God for us, the grace that God has uh, shown to us, the everlasting life that He has imparted to us, the joy that He's brought into our life that we uh, had never known before and could never find any place else in, in, the whole, uh, in, in the whole world, the relationship that came with this salvation. And so Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Apparently it is possible in a church to forget about Jesus. The church becomes about anything and everything other than Jesus. It happened at the church of Laodicea. He's knocking on the door on the outside, and they don't even know there's anything wrong with that picture. And so this reminds us that our Christian life is about him, and the church is about him. And time to just stop and remember him and, uh, and how good he has been to us. It's also a a way of just keeping, I think, the main thing, uh, the main thing, and the main thing certainly is Jesus. So this evening we just considered this healing of this lame man from his mother's womb and uh, healed in the name of a living uh, Jesus and uh, allowing him to then live a life that he had previously been impossible for him to live. So born physically unable to walk and to run and to leap and the joy that he expressed at being able to experience that kind of a, of a, a, a spiritual uh, healing and being able to live that kind of life. And then, of course, the application to us to remember that as Christians, we have each of us experienced an even greater miracle in our spiritual birth. And we were no different in one respect than that man that looked at all of these people living all of these lives and walking and doing and, and him not being able to do that and disqualified from the, lo- from the womb from being able to do that. And then for us to be able to read the scriptures and the description of the Christian life, the beauty of the Christian life, and to realize that from the womb we were disqualified for that life, never could, could know it, never did know it. And then when we're born again by the Holy Spirit, God gives us then the power to do and the will to do of God's good pleasure. And he brings us into a life that we would never otherwise know. Every one of you as Christians is an incredible miracle of God. The quality of life and experience that we have on a daily basis because of the spiritual birth that's occurred within our lives and because of a living, risen Jesus. And there's so much to celebrate in that. And so we want to think about the miracle that our lives are to give him praise, to give him Uh, thanks. Feel free to jump up and leap in the Spirit and praise God as we partake of the Lord's Supper uh, tonight. But if this was his reaction to a physical healing, ah, the reaction that is due on our part toward him for what he has done in healing us uh, and cleansing us uh, spiritually. So never is this some kind of a of a thing where it's just uh, rote or it's just tradition or it's just, oh, it's the second Sunday night of the month and so we do this. A time to remember that a risen Jesus did a miracle in our lives. And to remember that and to give him praise and to give him thanks tonight. 
So if the worship team will come forward and the men will come forward, we'll serve the Lord's Supper. And um, as it's passed out, just hold on to the bread. We'll pray together and partake together, and then we'll do the same thing uh, with the cup. As they're making their way here, if you are here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and been born again, you can do that instantly right now in the seat that you're in and, and be saved and born again and then partake of the Lord's Supper with us this evening. If you're not a Christian, then just enjoy the rest of the service, but don't partake of the elements. We don't want to partake of the symbols of his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins while refusing to appropriate it to our lives. I want, and God wants, you to enjoy this Lord's Supper uh, uh, in, in the full way that it's intended uh, after you are saved. And so let's continue to worship the Lord and praise him tonight and remember him.